Before we jump into the app, quick reminder that nothing on Bell Curve is financial advice. Everything is just a meme. Hope you guys enjoy. All right, buddy. We are back. Season two. Ready to kick this thing off? We are back. I'm super excited about season two. Yeah, season one was fun, but this is uh, this is where it really gets exciting. Me too. You know, you know why I'm excited about this? We we tackled a pretty big concept here, pretty big topic within crypto, and you just know we're sitting in the depths of a bear market because it was very hard to find anyone who had many positive things to say about it. <laughs> yeah, not, not too many people wanted to uh, join this season. I'll tell you, it's a little harder to get uh, to get guests for this season than last season. That's how you know you we're know- in the depths of the bear. You know, it was more just like, you know, we, we do a bunch of research, you know, before these seasons, we ask a whole bunch of people, hey, this is roughly what we're thinking. Does this make a lot of sense to you? And even the difference between season one and season two, season one, people were willing to talk. People were excited. Hey, I think this is going to work. Here's this problem. But like, I'm super bullish long term on the future. Talking to people about this season was just like. Yeah, this isn't working. This isn't working. Hard to see any advantages to it. Yeah, I really really recommend you don't dig into that topic too deeply. Uh, Pretty pretty bearish overall on the topic, but but you but but we are both bullish on the topic. We are both excited about it. I I I think you and I are feeling like yeah, we're in the depths of the bear. Um, But talking about this topic is important because it will be big in the next twelve to eighteen months when when the cycle returns. So I'm I'm excited about it. So what are we talking about this season? Okay, so season three is all about governance, and we're going to be. Season two, season two, season <laughs> Jesus, we season just two, skip season two, and go straight to season three. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, uh, all right. So season two is all about governance. To borrow a phrase from the first guest, actually of the show, basically the the thesis of season two is business governance fit. So DAOs are basically the subject here, and we're going to be basically evaluating at a high level when is it appropriate to be a DAO. What does that, what type of uh, advantages do being a DAO and that governance structure confer onto your organization? And what are the, uh, what, like, when should you be a DAO as opposed to a company? And we can break down these, this thesis into three different arguments, which is one, you need to find business governance fit. So there are different types of organizations out there, and it makes sense to have different types of governance for each one of those uh, organizations. Two, most of the DAOs out there that exist today basically resemble a kind of a mix between a private and a public for-profit company. And therefore, we should be using corporate governance as our overarching thought process for these things, for how to govern these things. And three, at the end of the day, the advantages of a DAO differ depending on how mature the organization is. In the beginning, the advantages of being a DAO as opposed to a company have to do with distribution and the community. And at the end of the day, when a DAO is mature, it will be dependability. So that's the overarching thesis of the season. Let me pick into a couple of those because I want to better understand this and and pull some of this stuff out. So the first one, you said DAOs are one solution to the problem of business governance fit. Can you tell me just a couple of different types of organizations and and, and what that actually looks like in the maybe the non-crypto world? Yep. So we're going to get into this in episode one with Hasu and Chris, but the way that Chris breaks it up in his piece, which we'll link in the show notes here, is there's almost a two by two matrix of different types of organizations and uh, public and private and profit and nonprofit. And you can see examples of some of the different types of organizations, right? So in nonprofit organizations, you have charities, hospitals, things like that. And then in you know for-profit organizations, you have companies, right? Like, like Meta or Apple or whatever. I think the the simpler way to understand for me is actually if you look at governments versus corporations, right? Because I think that's things that people understand. So 
if you're a Milton Friedman advocate, right, or, or disciple, then you know that the point of a corporation is to maximize shareholder value. And typically that refers to producing more profits, right? That is the stated goal of a company. So you can look at every decision that a company makes through the lens of trying to achieve that objective of generating outsized returns and profits. A government is very different, right? You don't really have shareholders in the sense that a company does. And typically what a government is trying to do is kind of at a large level, organize society in a way that's beneficial for the users of the country, right? Which are its citizens. Very, very different things. There's no profit, right? To generate really what you're trying to do is raise the, the, uh, you know, basically maintain a good enough lifestyle for each one of your citizens so that they can keep voting you into power. Very, very different end states, almost at a philosophical level. As such, we have very different governance for a country, for the United States, as opposed to a corporation, right? In a corporation, we have very distinct sets of understood shareholder or uh, uh, stakeholders. We've got our board of directors, we've got our managers, we've got our investors, we've got our users. In the government, it's very different. Even within the United States government, right, we have different organizations based on what that branch of government has to do. We've got judicial, legislative, executive. Executive, very top-down, autocratic-type design, right, which is optimized for fast decision-making. In the legislative branch, because so many of the laws that get passed by there are um, uh, impact the lives of each of its citizens, it's far more distributed. It's far more decentralized. And finally, we have the forward-thinking, long-term decision-making, which is the judiciary part of the government. And that is appointed by the executive branch, and they are for life, which allows them to think very, very long-term, right, and not necessarily be subject to the whims of the mob and the public or making good decisions on a quarter over quarter basis so that they can keep their jobs. So even if you look at the United States purely as a, as a, as a governance example, you can see different forms of governance for what that each part of the government needs to do. Right. So I think one of the things that's important that we'll be exploring this season is, is what is the intent behind your organization, right? If you take a protocol, right? If you look at someone like, um, uh, like an Ave, for example, is the intent of Ave more like a company in the in the Milton Friedman sense? Is it to drive as much shareholder value as possible and to generate as much cash flow as possible, or is the intent of Ave to be this thing that maybe kind of sits in the background, is just this protocol for borrowing, borrowing and lending? Uh, other folks can build on top of it. In which case the governance fit should look very different in those two situations. So we're going to explore over the next, what, six, seven episodes, what that actually looks like. But but your argument seems like, Mike, that it's all about the intent, right? So there are two key things that I think organizations should consider, whether to be a DAO or a, or a company, basically. One is the intent of the organization, right? So is this just maximize shareholder returns and profits? Uh, or is there some, some other intent, right? You can even look at DAOs. There's like Ukraine DAO, right? To raise funds for... Ukrainians, that type of thing. So it depends on the intent of the organization overall. And then the other thing that is very accepted in corporate governance, it's kind of taken for granted, but I never see discussed within the concept of DAO governance is how mature is your organization, right? What is the life cycle? If you take the example of a company, for instance, the governance at a very early stage, always private company is extremely different of what the end state of governance looks like for for-profit corporation. In DAOs, we almost have this one-size-fits-all, this is when you should be a DAO, this is when you should be a company, and it never takes into account the maturity of the organization. So it has to do with two things, the intent of the organization and the maturity of the organization. Yeah, you remember Variant had that post maybe two years ago about exiting to the community? 
Yep. Reminds me of that, right? You start very centralized and then you start to eventually exit to the community. Um, yep. All right. So, let, so let's, so that was kind of point number one about different types of companies and organizations, governance fit. Tell me about point number two, right? You said most DAOs today, in our opinion, broadly fit the term for, you know, for for-profit entities, kind of fit into that bucket, um, in which case corporate governance is the correct lesson to borrow from. Is this kind of a thesis that that you believe? Is this something that you want to explore with the guests? Tell me more about this. Yeah. So I think I'll just put my hand up and say this could change over time. I think if you look at most of the DAP layer of DAOs that exist today, these things look like for-profit entities. You can quibble about whether it's public or whether it's private or what stage of development they're at or whatever it is. But in my opinion, the implicit, if not explicit promise of these organizations is that they're going to generate profits. And I think the way that you can, you know, one of the things that you can test, right? The litmus test for that is that they've issued a token, which is worth something, right? And I know there are regulatory reasons for not promising access to, uh, you know, any of the cash flows that the protocol generates. In many cases, they have actually bend over backwards for the protocol itself not to generate any revenue, right? Because they don't want it to be a security. But at the end of the day, I think most of these things look like for-profit entities that resemble business. In that case, I think the the canon for governance that we should be borrowing from looks more like uh, corporate governance as opposed to something like sovereign level, uh, very, you know, b- uh, governance, which is kind of based more on fairness, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And then the last thing I think that you and I both feel strongly about is uh, that the advantage of DAOs is ultimately based on the stage of the DAO, right? You were talking about maturation. There's two different things to determine kind of why DAO or when DAO, right? One is intent and the second is maturation. This third bucket that we're exploring is that the advantage of DAOs is very dependent on the stage of the DAO, right? In the beginning, it's kind of the, the value of the DAO is really the community. You get distribution, you get this rapid product iteration. And then later on, maybe if you're just becoming that, you want to become that protocol layer for others to build on top of, actually something like ossification and dependability might really be the benefit of becoming a DAO. And you can look at things like Ethereum and Bitcoin as an example here, right? Yeah. Well, before before we get onto that, I just want to, I want to get into the idea of decision-making in organizations and how many different people should be involved in decision-making. So there is a reason at a very early stage of company where you want nimble management teams that don't have to have a lot of decision. One, One thing that I see over and over and over in literature around DAOs in what people talk about with the community is this idea of crowdsourcing ideas and somehow greater access to ideas and opinions is going to lead to better decision making. That is simply not true. It is the opposite of that. The vast majority of good decisions over basically, I think human civilization have been through small groups of people who've been empowered. There are good reasons to involve more stakeholders in the eventual outcome of organizations, but that is a separate topic from crowdsourcing decision makings. I just don't think that's how you make good decisions. Think about even internally, use an example in Blockworks, right? Like think about how you and I have talked about how decisions get made, right? As we've gone from, you know, eight to 10 to 25 to 50 people, right? I think a lot of what good leadership is, especially at a very early stage of a startup or organization is figuring out which people should be involved in making decisions, trying to limit that to making it as few people as possible. And even deciding like, what is the appropriate time for people to know information to make decisions? All of that stuff is that that is a that is a those are that's a process which should be governed by a small group of highly motivated, highly competent people. And I think over a greater period of time, when you have more and more people, first of all, after the organization has seen seen some success, but 
after the impacts of the decision-making in that organization reach more and more people, that is when you give voice to more and more people, I think. Exactly. But, yeah. And you also, you're supposed to, you're supposed to qualify the people that just have access to this information. I can't tell you how many times I've been lurking in governance forums and a really qualified service provider to a DAO, for instance, will say, hey, uh, I put together this proposal. You know, oftentimes it's extremely detailed, very well thought out, you know, 10 page proposal. And they kind of just put it out there and someone from the community just comments, too expensive. It's like, on what basis? <laughs> On what basis, man? You're looking at that. You have no idea what the market cost is for that. You don't know what the return is for doing that. You don't know what the risks of not, maybe it's a risk management type proposal, right? Where you're, where you're uh, simulating different, you know, you know, different scenarios or outcomes. It's just uninformed people commenting on, there's, there's not only no value from uninformed people that are commenting on complex decisions, there is negative value, intense negative value, I would say. Yeah. And I think it's very dependent on that maturation phase, right? Where yeah. where are you in the protocol? If it's maybe later on, that is okay for the whole community to be making decisions. And you see this with something um, like some of the kind of earlier protocols in crypto. But if it's something like a 10-person startup, that should just, you should be running a centralized playbook right there. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and I think then, you know, that, that aspect of decision-making that kind of leads into what are the advantages of being a DAO at an early stage of a DAO? Like how should it look versus a later stage? And you know, I've thought about this quite a bit. I think when it comes to a DAO right now, the, the current state of DAO governance, first of all, it varies very you know differently based on DAO to DAO. But basically a lot of, first of all, there's a lot of shadow stuff that takes place off the forums. But in theory, the way that it kind of works is Every major decision for a DAO is put to a vote in front of everyone and token holders vote on it and the decision gets passed or it doesn't pass. Um, and that's both financing decisions and it's very technical, sometimes product decisions. And I'm going to make the controversial step of saying capital allocation decisions, especially in the early stage of a community, I think the community should have no say over whatsoever. I think you see this in treasury management. I think one of the reasons why DAOs were late to preparing for this downturn in bear market was this idea of not wanting to be front run by the DAO. So they didn't want to sell native token into USDC or something like that, which was 1000% the right decision, but they basically didn't want to get... The idea of getting front run by the DAO is hilarious, but that is a great example of why capital allocation decisions should be made from financial professionals and not by back holders, basically. And I think there should be extreme, I think there should be a, there should be a way for the community to contribute to product decisions, but you should essentially have to prove that you're a user. There should be some steps of qualification before you can have input. I don't think you should basically just be able to permissionlessly join the community and start giving advice day one. It's just, it's just not helpful. But I think where yeah. DAOs, sorry, what, what, do you, what do you think about that? Well, just on that point, I think that that is, I, I would probably push back. I think that it is fine for anyone to weigh in on, on decisions, just like people weigh in on Blockwork stuff all the time. I mean, look at our ruthless YouTube comments. It's just that you don't <laughs> listen to them, right? And you don't have to listen to these things. Where it gets interesting in DAOs is different voting mechanisms are still really early stage, right? So if you look at a lot of the protocols, it's like one-to-one -to -one token to vote. So 
But if you actually look at where people's tokens are coming from, oftentimes they don't have the capital to buy the tokens themselves. So they're getting delegated by someone. And if you actually follow the flow of the delegation, uh, usually it's coming from one or two people. So like one massive whale will control the delegation of like the 10 most important voters. So really it's actually quite a centralized system, even though you have like 20 important people voting on these things. And that's another, so that is a system where like, you do have quote unquote, the most important people, the people who own the most amount of like, in this case, like equity slash tokens voting on things who have the power, but really sometimes I've seen, they don't want to upset the person who has delegated tokens to them. So they vote a certain way. Right? What could you be so, referring to here? Is there a very well-known bellwether type DAO where this situation might be <laughs> applicable? Huh? I wonder, um, you know what I, you know what I think is going to get put to the test dude is this idea of, the shareholder and the user being the same thing in the token holder. We will see. I Because there are definitely companies that I, you know, in my little personal portfolio that I'm great at losing money in, uh, there are definitely companies or uh, tokens or whatever that I like. Uh, and for that reason, I want to be a an owner of that company or protocol, but I have no interest in being a user and vice versa. There are also products that I love and use, but I don't think their business prospects are particularly yeah. good. And there's been this idea that, aligning being the having the users and the shareholders be the same thing is going to be this extremely great alignment of incentives and interests. And I think that is still up for debate, whether or not that ends up happening, frankly. And Um, tangentially, I think there's, um, I mean, we saw with Lido, like the dual class, the dual governance scheme, right? Which isn't really users um, and investors. I think uh, in Lido's case, it was, uh, it, they were trying to prevent validators from amassing like undue power by giving Steeth holders veto powers over proposed changes to the protocol. So like we're starting to see, and like dual class voting exists in, in corporate governance all the time, right? So we're starting to see these things that do look kind of like corporate governance. So that's that's the hottest topic in, I would say, corporate governance and probably finance at large. So at the, at the time of us saying this, uh, probably the, the most interesting experiment in in governance or development in governance is actually happening outside of crypto. It's happening with Mark Zuckerberg over at Meta, right? Who famously has dual class voting shares, uh, is embarking through Reality Labs, their metaverse unit. I saw on a, on a podcast episode, if you basically chart out what Meta says they're going to spend on Reality Labs, which is something to the tune of like, uh, you know, they've said it's it's going to be 10 billion next year, but that's drastically going to increase, right? So maybe let's call it like 25 billion or something a year. If you plot that out, and then, and then compare uh, against 10 years. So say they're going to spend $250 billion. If you compare that to previous capital allocation programs in history, inflation adjusted, that's about what the U.S. spent to reach the moon on the Apollo mission. So <laughs> it's like an extremely tremendous amount of uh, capital allocation that's happening through one person. And it's making people upset, right? But I want to I, I say the advantage that I think that DAOs have as opposed to early stage companies is distribution. I think that is I think that is the key advantage that they have because when you're a young company, you might not have access to a whole bunch of funds, you don't have a brand name, anything like that. Usually the way that you grow for many for many young companies is word of mouth, right? Creating evangelists. This is a lot of what uh, you know the modern kind of function of growth is based on especially at an early stage. The ability to issue tokens and potentially make people wealthy and then have them talking about you and creating this virtuous flywheel is enormous. And I would actually, I would actually say issuing tokens and getting people wealthy is how 
every single crypto product that exists today that arguably has product market fit has achieved distribution. I think every single one. And vice versa. It's the reason why some of these newer layer ones might struggle because they came out at such a high valuation, right? So they, yeah. they won't have that core base of users that they make wealthy. Um, 100%. Do you want to talk about some of the episodes we have coming up? I want to, I want to just say then the, the end state, basically. So that's the advantage that I'll have in the beginning. I think at the end, what's very important, and this was ba- another uh, post that you and I drew on for inspiration for this season was a post that Vitalik wrote. Vitalik Buterin, um, on why DAOs should not, why DAOs are not corporation and there's a different form of governance. Uh, so you should definitely read that, which is the counterpoint to a lot of what, what we're saying right now. But I would say that the end state for why DAOs will be good, what successful DAOs will look like is product that have very minimized surface area. So they don't do a whole bunch of different things and have such a distributed governance that it actually takes, it takes very, very long to make decisions to the point where other companies, organizations, protocols will feel safe building on top of it. And what I mean by that is if you think about the U.S. government, people say this all the time, it takes a long time to make decisions. Is that a feature of a bug? In some instances, it's a bug, but in many cases, it's a feature because uh, we have very well-established you know, property law in the United States. We have a functioning justice system and judicial system and courts that enforce those property laws. You and I as entrepreneurs, it makes us feel very safe and secure in the idea that we can build a company and another group isn't going to inherit power in four years and say, oh, yep, I'm going to grab this and take it from you. So we feel very safe building something meaningful here. We don't even think about it. As opposed to, let's say you are a company and you're thinking about using a vendor, uh, right, or a, a selection of different vendors to build a product on top of, and your selection of vendor is going to be critical to uh, building the product. If there's only one vendor that you can use to build a product on top of, you might as well not build that product, right? Uh, another great example of this is Zynga, right? Building on Facebook. Unilaterally, boom, they ripped it out from or, under or you. All and the companies that built on Twitter using the Twitter API and then they just shut down and then they shut it down. Right. So if you, rem- and, and companies have internalized that and, and learned that lesson. So I think one of the, the features of DAOs that people complain about so much now, right? It was really hard to get anyone to say a positive thing about DAO governance. To summarize what most people said, there are no advantages. <laughs> We're like, what are the advantages of DAO governance? People are like, there is no advantage. But I think at a mature stage, what people find so frustrating right now, which is I can't get anything passed. There's a whole bunch of people weighing in, blah, blah, blah. I think in a mature stage of DAO, that ossification actually becomes an advantage because it will make things, the changes will come so slowly that other protocols will actually feel safe and comfortable building on top of those DAOs. So what does that mean for you know capital allocation in those DAOs? What does that mean for the return on tokens of those DAOs that start to look more like utilities and public goods than anything else? I don't know. But I, I do think at the end of the day, it is the ability to uh, having decisions come very, very slowly in a very equitable, fair way. There is an advantage to that uh, in some cases. And I think that's just for mature DAO. So a lot of the friction that we see today, I think with people complaining about DAO governance has to do that we're trying with what we're trying to borrow is the end state of DAO governance versus the beginning. And again, to just repeat in corporate governance, it changed. It's an accepted known thing that in a small company, no one expects like in many cases, a board of directors or all this distributed decision-making. It's the explicit expectation that the founders are supposed to make all the decisions. And then it gets distributed over time because people understand that in a large corporation with a lot of stakeholders, 
that is beneficial. Yeah. Eric Voorhees, Voorhees said this thing on stage at Permissionless this past year. Um, he said that DAOs are simply regulatory ar arbitrage today. I'm curious how much you want to explore the regulatory side of DAOs and why, whether or not regulation is driving these DAOs, um, or if you are looking, or, or if you just want to avoid regulation in general. Yeah, I think I do want to talk about that because I would agree with that. I would agree with that idea. Uh, I, I think one of the lessons that we learned from season one is we had a very specific thesis. I know what I just outlined was was pretty specific as well, but I think what we want this to be is an exploration, right, of of this topic of DAO governance. We wanted to come in with a perspective and a point of view on DAO governance, not to say, hey, we're going to explore DAO governance, but I fully expect a lot of what we're saying to get pushback from our guests. And I would hope that at the end of this season, we are proven wrong about some of what we, you know, of some of how we're looking at this this topic in the beginning. So, you know, to I, I do think today mostly we didn't really talk about this angle, but the other advantage DAOs have probably is a global audience, and yeah. it is regulatory arbitrage. Which, by the way, the internet got the internet is basically a whole regulatory arbitrage play too. So, I think, yeah, I think that is a I think that's a massive. So, topics we'll explore outside of what I just explicitly outlined is we're going to do a whole bunch of work at. Uh, looking at treasury management, basically, we're going to try to categorize like, okay, these are a lot like what buckets exist for DAOs, right? Like what are kind of more social clubs and what at their end state should be almost like for-profit public companies. Uh, we're going to be looking at regulatory arbitrage. We're going to be looking at treasury management, and we're going to be explicitly talking near the end of the season about what are some of the explicit changes that DAOs are already undergoing, right? So what are some of the experimentation that's happening within DAO governance? And how do we think DAOs are going to look in the next the next bull market versus where we currently are? Yeah, we have some great guests lined up. We've got the team at Reverie, Larry and Derek coming on from Reverie. We've got Hasu and Chris. Uh, we've got Mika Honkasalo, Tarun, Chris Berniski, uh, Jules Rosenberg, Charles St. Louis. We've got some really great guests. Um, so we're excited about this one. Uh, anything else about the about the show, about the season? I want to give a shout out to two of the sponsors for the season, but anything else before we do that, Mike? I would just, would just like, this is an exploration of your and my interests. So guys, yeah. please give us feedback. Would love it. Uh, a lot of people give us, you know, assistance and support in developing these theses and ideas. Um, and we'd love to hear back from from all of you what you think about this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Big shout out to uh, this. This show is completely free because of the sponsors. So I want to give a shout out to Avalanche and uh, Reserve Protocol. Avalanche, uh, hopefully everyone knows Avalanche by this point. If you're listening, I'd assume you know Avalanche. Uh, blazingly flat, fast, amazing L1. Uh, they've had some incredible developments in the bear market. Uh, they rolled out the core wallet. Uh, it's like a competitor to MetaMask. Um, I've been using it. It's amazing. It's really, really fast. Uh, they have they worked with, I think it was Paraswap to do swaps inside of the inside of the wallet. It's really, really nice. You guys should check it out. There's also a bunch of uh, cool DeFi stuff happening on Avalanche right now. They also have uh, the Avalanche Bridge. You can natively, um, you can move Bitcoin native, uh, Bitcoin natively into the Avalanche Bridge. I think it was like $70 million worth of Bitcoin were bridged over to Avalanche in just the first month since the bridge launched in the core wallet. So this is an example of a team who's just been really heads down building um, in the bear market and what they have going on with subnets is super interesting. So we're going to keep talking about Avalanche um, in throughout this entire season. But if you don't know Avalanche, uh, hopefully you do know them. Uh, but if you do know them and you haven't looked at what they're doing recently, you should go check out the core wallet, you should bridge some, some assets into it. And um, yeah, go check out Avalanche. The second one is uh, is reserve. Reserve is super interesting. So 
Reserve Protocol is a uh, a platform to build, deploy, and govern asset-backed stablecoins. So I've known their team for a while. I spoke on a no bear market and stables, baby. No bear market and stables. <laughs> and their thesis is that the world would be a better place if uh, if anyone could go create their own stablecoin, and you let the market decide. You let the free market decide where capital should flow into. So they have just launched a protocol. Um, to give anyone the ability to go create these custom bespoke stablecoins using the reserve protocol. So you can build uh, a stablecoin backed by maybe specific USD stables. You can get more complex. You can use like inversely correlated assets, right? The branding, the governance, the composition, they're entirely up to you. Um, we're going to talk a lot more about reserve uh, in the show, but yeah, I've known their team for a long time. Uh, spoke on a panel with Nevin back at, I think, SF Blockchain Week in 2019. Been excited about what they're doing and have wanted to work with them for a while. So yeah, go check out Reserve. We'll put some links in the show notes. Sweet, buddy. Looking forward to the season. Should we get an avalanche. It? You guys are the real ones. Appreciate you. Yep, let's get into it. See you next time.